and a world of downloadable and streaming singles. Our hope with this podcast is to look a little deeper into what influences musicians and see the impact an album, as opposed to a single, can have on an artist's work. This is The Sound Effect. Dave, let's talk about one of the greatest albums ever. You're waiting for me to say something flippant like, oh, <laughs> you mean Led Zeppelin 2? 
No, oh, no. Yeah. But certainly one of the most, I think we can certainly agree, probably one of the best albums of maybe the last 20 years, uh, and certainly one of the most important albums. We're talking this week of Wilco's Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. Yes. Uh, an album I kind of thought would show up maybe a little earlier. Like, I kind of expected this to be an album that popped up maybe in the first first year or something, because it is one of those albums that... Uh, as I mentioned the, in the interview that we do today, I, I remember everyone listening to this record. So I kind of expected this record to show up maybe a little earlier than, you know, three quarters of the way through the second season. Depends on who you get. And I think maybe there's some of that. Well, I don't want to say Yankee Hotel Foxtrot because that's just right. too, too pretentious. Of course, yeah. I'm listening to that. Sure. So, so Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, the fourth studio album from the American... I want to, I mean... I call them a rock band, rock Americana band. Yeah, sure. Uh, Wilco, uh, first released September 18th, 2001. Um, I'm going to point out here some interesting connections, too, because it was originally supposed to release um, September 11th, 2001. Um, and if you look at the album cover, there's the towers mm-hmm. on it, right? There's, yeah. uh, And then even some of the song references, there's some in- interesting references there to that that you know, conjure up images of, of 9-11. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, so always remember that release date coming September 18th, 2001. Um, historically released on Re- Reprise Records, Wilco's, uh, well, sorry, I shouldn't say that, was supposed to be released by Reprise Records, yes. Wilco's record label at the time, but they refused the album, felt unhappy about the end result, which would lead them to depart and spend the next year kind of publicly fighting uh, in the media about this um and instead stream the entire album for free on their website on that date of september 18th 2001 super, super cool like this this is around oh, yeah. the time too of artists are are realizing man why are our cds going for 25 dollars in some record stores wilco's like ahead of the game saying you know what we're not making any money off this it's sitting here Everybody listen to it and do what you got to do and come come check us out live, right? And I'm going to say uh, one, th- one thing I wanted to, was, uh, not to interrupt you, but reading when you wrote it, it was Reprise. I did a quick search of repi- Reprise artists, which is, you know, you go through some of it. There's like a who's who there. You got T-Rex. Yep. You've got yep. uh, Roxy Music, Brian Ferry, Faith No More, Fleetwood Mac, the Guess Who, and, uh, and Jimi Hendrix and this little rock band from Chicago shows up and said, well, here's our album. They're like, no, no, I don't hear. This isn't, this isn't good. It's, and it's, and it's just like, you've got all these bands, all these different sounds. And and again, we've, we've questioned this before on like the Beatles one, a couple of our episodes. You're like, where are these labels coming from where they think, you know, no, we know better. You know, this is also the label that signed Zwan. Right. And, you know, so. Eh. Well, and it's it's strange. Their argument was that there wasn't a single here. But when I yeah. listen to the record, I mean, that's that's the thing that's so frustrating is there's singles all over this record, well, as far as I'm concerned. Well, that's like, there's nothing that's unlistenable. Well, that's just it. Like, it's like they, they say this is unlistenable. And I'm like, there's there's some toe tappers here. Like you, yeah, you, you go sure. into it, you must people must have been going into it. My God, what is wrong with this album? And you're like, oh, this one, 
This one's a ditty. I like it. This is cl- yeah. Like what were some... they like? Were they looking for Third Eye Blind? I'm not really sure what <sighs> they were expecting of Wilco, right? Yeah. But that that was certainly, you know, I guess they didn't have an out of sight, out of mind. Um, that's from, uh, from yeah, and maybe that's what they were thinking. But yeah. I, I don't that. know. But yeah. But I mean, by November that year, they signed with None Such Records, which is ironically also owned by Warner, which is where that the funniness of all this comes, that they're both owned by Warner. Yeah. Um, and is generally after it's released officially in April of uh, 2002, it gets widespread acclaim from critics, from fans. It really launches the career of Wilco from being a bar band to um, a large concert hall band. And um, I think it's widely regarded now as one of the greatest albums of the 2000s. Um, Wilco's best-selling work uh, reached number 13 on Billboard 200 um, and became sort of the iconic album, I think, for Wilco uh, and made them the band that I kind of think are our are, are, are renowned band in the world now. <clears throat> I'm going to say before this album came out, uh, I wasn't really... I wasn't really up on Wilco or Jeff Tweedy's past uh, projects. Uh, it was you actually bringing the documentary to my attention, where I I more got into. I knew I knew Out of Sight and uh, a couple other tracks, but this is where I'm like, oh wow, these this guy's like really an artist. Like just the and as much as I said when we, we were getting ready for this episode, like oh let's not talk about the documentary too much. You have to you have to reference it a little bit. Yeah, so you're talking here about the Sam Jones documentary, right? Exactly. Sam Jones, I'm trying to break your heart. A film about Wilco. Yeah, um, yeah, great documentary. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was, su- it was just amazing, and that probably informed me most of all about Yankee Hotel Frogstrot. So, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Like, uh, they're good companion pieces, and so this, yeah, this is where I came in on Wilco too. And I've been in and out over the years, seen them live a couple times, and. Uh, but yeah, this is the one that everyone references when you think of Wilco, right? Yeah, for me, I uh, I wasn't so much an Uncle Tupelo fan until later I started right. to like them. But I'm a much bigger Wilco fan. Um, I liked what I heard of AM. Didn't mind it. But at that mm. time, that country thing was kind of getting over my head. I didn't really kind of grasp grasp it right right then. Uh, but I really liked being there. Uh, and uh, that one... Uh, again was a, an amazing double album that uh really kind of for me formatted them as wow they're the band who are really kind of doing something a little different uh and then of course summer teeth which was a, a big success and mermaid avenue which you know was another super popular one that they did with um <clears throat> billy bragg uh, with billy bragg yeah. right so uh yeah so they had done these sort of small steps before this album to secure themselves and i think and you see this in the, in the sam jones documentary where the record company does give them a ton of money and they they have some faith in them right like there there's a part where uh bennett's laughing at the documentary going they've just given us like seventy five thousand dollars and um they haven't asked the thing yeah. and uh that's a that's a just shows you that the record company reprise did have some faith in this band and you know believed that they could do something uh, to this day I'm flabbergasted that that they didn't see what this album was like, that's, like that's yeah in that's, retrospect some some heads must have rolled at reprise yeah and that's surely and, like oh, I would hope so I would hope so yeah. like that's you, you want to believe that but the, no the guy's probably 
the guy that nixed it probably is still working and signing other weird bands or whatever and it's yeah like i I was saying you you want to like what was going through your head first off you gave a band seventy five thousand dollars in the early 2000s like that's 1970 something money like sure oh you need six months to go record an album go for it have fun let us know what when you're done and we'll we'll get it out there for you like that, which again I think shows shows the the <clears throat> the faith that they had in this band, right? Yeah. And again, this wasn't a one hit wonder. This is a band who had had, you know, uh, an acclaimed debut album following. with AM, a follow up double album. They had a great live following. Uh, Summer Teeth was a critical, huge critical success. Uh, many album of the year contenders there, and then they do this crossover album with uh, with Billy Bragg. Like they they were a band who had. I know we don't like to use this term paid their dues, but they had done, you know, four solid records then. And I think there was this sense that, yeah, we can put $75,000 into this band. Um, I just, you know, this is not, I don't know. This is not the car that Homer Simpson built for 75,000. Like, you know, this is a, this is like how the record company, I'm still just coming back to the fact that how did the record company not see this? Yeah for what it was is still shocking to this and, day. And listening to the albums before that, you're like, you can hear the evolution. There's, 100%. And, there, and there's art there. And now you're giving this band more time in the studio? Like, what do you think they're going to do? Yeah, and letting them self-produce it, right? Yeah. I mean, they're self-producing it until they, uh, until kind of at the last minute when, um, when Jay... Uh, sorry, when uh, when Jeff and Jay decide, uh, Jeff Tweedy and Jay Bennett decide uh, that they're going to bring in like Jim O'Rourke, who again is a pretty sensational producer, to come in and, and put the final touches on this record. Uh, you got a star-studded, um, you, you, the band is really at this high peak now where you have, uh, uh, you have Glenn Coach coming in as the drummer, who's just a sensational drummer. Uh, they're just, they're, they're just humming on all cylinders here. And this, this album, you know, is a nice pick by Dan Mangan. Uh, that, uh, yeah, I was really excited when he made it. Cause I've been dying to talk about this album for 18 months. I 
Vancouver's Dan Mangan is a two-time Juno winner and has been called the nicest guy in music. I really think he might be, Dave. Uh, For almost 20 years, Dan Mangan has recorded uh, six studio albums and proven himself to be one of Canada's most important artists. His seventh album, Being Somewhere, is just about to be released in November of 2022. So here's our interview with Dan Mangan. Hello, how are you? We are terrific. Thanks for joining us, Dan Mangan. This is amazing. Nice to be here. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, we can hear you perfectly fine. Yeah, that's perfect. So first <clears> off, <throat> congratulations on the upcoming record. Thank you. How how are you feeling about its release? Um, I'm feeling a few things. One thing that I'm feeling is that I think it's like the best music I've ever made. Um, I think it's... Um, there's this like compendium of like trying to fit a bullseye within another bullseye you know of like try and write a great song and then try and find a production treatment for that song that is unique and innovative and interesting and exciting and sometimes you get one but not the other um and so you know you're always aiming to hit both so one of the things i'm feeling is really excited and um just generally proud of the work i think it's great i i think that it's it's exciting to feel like on my sixth record and 39 years old that I'm I think I'm writing the best songs I've ever written and I think that the they're coming across in a way that's exciting and t- kind of timeless and I attribute a lot of that to the producer Drew Brown and his amazing work <clears throat> but also terrified um, that anybody will hear it um, it's never been like harder or weirder to put music out to try and punch through the sort of social cultural canvas um i don't know like it's just the game has changed so much and i think that the 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 young people coming up today uh just inherently are better at social media and social media is now like you know i don't know 50 60 percent of the game so 
Um, wouldn't it be nice if making a great record was enough? Um, but that being said, it's never been enough to do that. It, it, you've always had to have like all those other things come into play. So um, yeah, now becomes the daunting work of like begging the world to listen to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's uh, we just interviewed um, uh, Dave uh, from the golden dogs. And he kind of talked about how image is such an important aspect of, of rock and roll that, you know, we unfortunately, you know, we, we both love and hate, right? We love to yeah. have that image to pull us in, but we just want the music to speak for itself, right? Yeah. And I mean, image has always been everything, you know, I mean, like the mop top Beatles and the, you know, like the open shirt, Robert Plant, you know, like, it, you know, yeah. selling the, the art has always been like, there, there was never a pure time when like, oh, you know, music was just music back then and anytime you hear some old white guy talk about the 70s like that's when music was just music like give me a fucking break yeah. um it's always been a part of it and the people who do it the best are the ones who are able to sort of like take that venn diagram of like art that is a, an important contribution to the world of art and music and, and creativity and uh, expression and then being able to package it in a way that is accessible for the world to, 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 you know, consume it. Um, and the very best people can sort of mirror, or like have a nice overlap of those two circles so that it never feels like they're trying very hard. Um, I think a lot about bands like Radiohead or, or Bjork or something like that who have commercial success and like critical sex success beyond your wildest dreams. Um, and it seems like they don't try. Like, it seems like it just happens naturally for them. But they are trying. The, the truth is that it they're just really, really good at it, you know? And they're able to do it in a way that feels authentic, um, which is the challenge. Like, to project yourself in, across. And every medium is different. Like, TikTok. TikTok's different than Instagram. And that's different than, like, posters. And that's different than radio. And, like, how do you transcend all of these mediums in a way that feels exciting uh, and yet authentic is so hard. And is is it especially? Does it feel like you're just starting all over again every with the release of every album? Like with all the every accolades record. you've had, all the success you've had previously. You know, you've toured the world. You've, you know, you've collaborated with tons of people, and it's like a new album. It's like oh, here we go again. Got to start from scratch. Yeah, I mean, there's there's like a few thoughts on that. One is the game keeps changing. Like I remember when I put out more or less in 2018, uh, I remember like you know Cam over at the label. He was like, okay, so the new thing is you got to get your songs on editorial playlists, and within like six months, that was it. Like that was the only way that music was being listened to, basically, you know, and uh, on for the most part. Um, and now it's changed again. Now it's no longer editorial playlists. It's algorithmic playlisting. <laughs> and uh, and like, you know, everything kind of coming over from TikTok. And it's just the game keeps changing over and over again. It's like every single record cycle, um, your plan of how you, what you're going to do has to be different. I mean, I'm really lucky that I have a fairly loyal and like dependable base, but at the same time i it's a little while ago somebody wrote on twitter something about me and they used the term 
like national treasure, which obviously on one side, you're like, oh, that gives me the warm and fuzzies that I've been at this long, long enough that <laughs> yeah. maybe I have like some sort of like elder statesman uh, attribution or something like that. But then at the same time, I was like, wait a minute. Like, that's depressing because I feel like I am starting over constantly and have no idea what I'm doing. And I'm always flying by the seat of my pants and have zero certainty in any of it. And so, you know, I think like no matter where you are on the ladder and, and for the record, I don't consider myself a national treasure, but I would, you know, it's, it's like, it, no matter where you are on the ladder of whatever, there's a million rungs in front of you and there's a million rungs behind you. And, I just, uh, I'm just letting you know now, though. I'm gonna put that in the post in the social media was, post. We're gonna, <laughs> we're gonna call you a national treasure. Just, we're gonna start building that up. Yeah. There we go. I was, and I was just gonna sign off national treasure, Dan Mangan, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I can see it now. Oh, it's like you know, on his sixth record, Dan Mangan grows a big head. <laughs> couple of years from now and it's a new album the record company's gonna come what about national treasure for the title come on let's, let's just own this let's just own this that's right turned out big head was taken as a title so we're going with national treasure yes. so i think uh, we're obviously gonna be talking about one specific record today but you're you're a guy who i mean even as i listen to the the tracks for your newest tracks um they kind of kind of sound different, but still have that Dan Mangan sound. And there's been enough as I, you know, after listening to you for years, you have this such diverse sound that you're still Dan Mangan, but there's points where I hear tons of different musicians, tons of different ideas mm -hmm. that are coming in there. Besides the record we're going to talk about today, who are like the artists that kind of influence your, your sound overall? Well, I mean, I think if you listen to my music, there's nothing about my music that really sounds very radio heady, you know, but they've always been my favorite band since I was like 14. Um, and I love that their music runs a, a different span, but a span. And um, I think that it's sort of about, just investigating every opportunity for the for the sounds and for the music and not falling into a rut like not falling into a trench of like this is how songs sound this is how music sounds um and part of it is that i i made very conscious decisions to try and work with people um who bring these other elements out of me um drew brown who produced this new record uh, I mean, he's worked with Radiohead. He's worked with Beck. He was Nigel Godrich's right hand in, in England for a number of years and like significantly talented guy. Just uh, what this guy can conjure up is amazing. Um, and he talks a lot about like the singer songwriter ghetto and how it's so easy to sort of be like, okay, here's a, here's what a nice sounding guitar sounds like. Here's, you know, um, and then let every, okay, everyone starts strumming. And then at the end of the song, we'll stop you know, and um, it's sort of like the obvious thing to do. And it's the thing that he reels away from, which is exciting to me because I don't, I don't listen to a lot of singer songwriter music. You know what I mean? And even though that is obviously what I am, I'm a dude with a guitar singing sad semi folk songs. Um, it's not what I, it's not what I'm excited about. It's not what I like, you know, 
am, am interested in or whatever. So uh, I get excited by things that, like, like I said earlier, that are able to uh, be exciting sonically. And yet if you peel away some of that polish, it's still a great song. Like you should be able to, you know, roll that song back into one piano note and a melody and it should, it should sing. You should be able to sing that song in any medium, in any format and have it transcend. And if it requires the sort of sonic fuckery, then it's not a great song. It's just a great production. And always trying to like balance these two things and then like fold them together in a way that says, oh, you know, I Dan can play that on a piano. I could play it on a guitar. I could play that with a tambourine. And you'd be like, that's a great song. That's what I'm aiming for. And then you have this opportunity, you go in the studio and there's a million options at your disposal. What are you gonna do with it? Um, and so at that point, it's for me, it's never been about like capturing um, like, you know, the perfect performance of me, maybe in the early days more so, just like a folky singer songwriter performance. But ever since So Fortune, it's been about, can we like, I've, I've always been more interested in pet sounds. Than I am in, um, you know, Nashville Skyline, basically. Like, uh, I think both are amazing. I love Nashville Skyline. Peggy Day stole my poor away. By golly, what more can I say? Love to spend the night with Peggy Day. But I've, when it comes to the studio, I've always been more interested in the expanse of doing something and like wild and kind of over getting over your head and getting getting into dangerous territory where you're reaching for something and not quite hitting it, and then knowing when you're not hitting it, and then really pulling it back and then figuring out where you are hitting it.
interesting then you pick this record because i mean that's that is what people pointed out for years about a band like wilco is the ability for uh jeff tweedy to go up and play a song acoustically and it still sounds great you're still sitting there singing all this all the song all the words and then when they get into the studio and i even think they they reference this in in the documentary where it's now we're just going to take that and we're just going to layer on Mm -hmm. top of that and play with that sound so walk us through here why this album what is it about this album that uh yankee hotel foxtrot which just celebrated its 20 or or just remastered and remixed and Mm re-released a few weeks ago they they released this record yeah they they just released a box set with like 82 tracks on it or something just four hours long (laughs) incredible um well it's interesting i in making being somewhere a lot of it was done it, it was it was all done long distance so um drew brown was working on it in chicago he was sending it off to players in la and london um, and i was doing all my takes in vancouver so it was very like i mean drew kind of had the keys to the castle he was sort of the one in charge helming this whole thing and um and so you know i really have to give him a lot of the credit because he he has this amazing ability to stay in discover mode all the time. Like he's always open to like tossing aside everything you've done and starting from scratch if you need to. Like he's always listening for something just in case, oh, that's, no. okay, I thought the song was this, but now it's that. He's willing to change on a dime. Um, And I think that that's really amazing. And then when I think, so I recently had the opportunity to interview Jeff Tweedy 
for the release of this 20 year anniversary. And um, it was interesting because in doing research for that interview to write that article, I listened to Yankee Hotel Foxtrot a bunch of times. And when I was young, I, I mean, I knew every word to that record. I listened to that record a million times. And it was almost after the fact of making this new record that I realized if there was one record out there that I was taking, you know, the essence of into this new record, it would be Yankee Hotel Foxtrot because as much as Kid A changed the game for everyone moving forward from Radiohead, um, I don't think that these songs are like Radiohead songs. These songs are like Jeff Tweedy songs. These songs are like, you know, I could strum them with an acoustic guitar and sing you the words and you'd be like, yep, that sounds like a folk song. But then when you hear them in the recording, they don't sound like anything like that. Um, it's a little bit like Postal Service in that way. You know, that that record Ben Gibbard did. Um, but it's not, it's not as like electro. Like I think that with Postal Service, it was like, okay, we're going to take this guy from Death Cab and we're going to like give this like electronic treatment. And it was amazing. The record was, was incredible. But that's, I don't feel like this, my record has like an electronic, it's not like EDM, you know, it's not like, um, it's not like an electronica record. It's just music. It's like indie rock with lots of weird sounds and samples and messed up stuff happening. Um, and so Yankee Hotel Foxtrot is that. Like, yet, like they took these folk songs and they stretched them and threw them against the wall in every direction to see what would stick. And I wrote in my article about that record that um, it required the luxury of like happenstance and it required the luxury of time so that like all of the, all of the pieces could trickle down and go fall through the sieve in a particular way. And I feel like, you know, being somewhere it took two and a half years to make. It was done in this sort of like long distance internet age way between all these different cities. And it really is that like it is taking Drew took these songs that started off as folk songs and said, okay, well, let's not assume that they are any kind of song. Let's just uh, see, you know, let's just trust our guts here and see what, see what it asks of us. To me, it was the experimentation that Wilco did too. Just the, the sounds, it wasn't just your typical, and I could see how maybe it was a little jarring for some fans and, and the label mm -hmm. apparently where, you know, what they had done before and now they're presenting this. And yeah. it's like, wow, there's a lot to take in there. This, the, this, the um, experimentation with all the different sounds in the background, the layering and stuff. And is that's, to me, that's just authentic. You, you t spoke about time. Like, like that's a band got to play. They got to take their time in the studio, which is, you know, that's a tall order these days. Studios are yeah. money. Time is money. Like, like you, yeah. need, you need how long to do this? So, yeah. Well, is that, and, is that and, a luxury you feel is lost? And like, do you appreciate that time you get? I mean, in, in a way, you can do so much on your laptop now, you know, that you couldn't do back then. Um, so I think a lot of interesting like bedroom records are being made today. Um, but experimentation is is everything like stay, keeping in that discover mode, staying open throughout the process. I mean, there were some songs that Drew would send me something he'd done on them. And I'd be like, uh, I don't know, man, this doesn't <laughs> sound right. And then he'd be like, wait, 
give it 48 hours, listen to it like 25 times. And then I listen to it 25 times over 48 hours. And I come back and I'd be like, you're a genius. This is the most incredible thing ever, you know? Um, and so it's interesting because, you you know, you mentioned with Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, they're labeled in like, they got dropped from Reprise Records. Uh, and then they end up re-signing with None Such Records. When I sent Being Somewhere to Arts and Crafts, it was sort of like a long pregnant pause. <laughs> Hello? Hello, anyone I, there? Hello? Yeah, I mean, like, you know, I'm, I'm managed by that company. I don't think that they're going to drop me, but um, they they didn't get it at first. And so that is, like, it's a fear here. Where like, so with Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, the reason they got dropped is because Reprise didn't know who this record was for. They didn't know how to sell it to them. And they didn't know, you know, how to market it. They didn't know what it was. They didn't get it. <clears throat> and this record that I've made with Drew Brown um, is a little bit that way. It's scary. It's not an obvious thing. It doesn't sound like all the other music that's happening right now. It doesn't sound like, you know, it, it doesn't sound like pop music. It doesn't sound like Charlie, you know, Puth and, and all that world. It doesn't sound like indie rock. It doesn't, it doesn't even sound like the cool bands like, um, you know, like a uh, big thief or something like that. Like it doesn't sound like anyone, I don't think. And so the exciting thing for me is that there's no ceiling on it, right? Like it, to me, it's, it, it, this could be for anybody, but the scary thing for a label when they're trying to market something is that like, they would rather have a ceiling and an expectation and know what, what the limitations of that record are they would rather have that, but have an under, a good understanding of how to get it there. And the problem with this one is I think it's a little bit ambiguous. It, it requires people to listen to it a few times. I don't know if you, if you guys have heard the whole record, but it, it, it asks something of the audience, which is a terrible thing to do oh. in 2022 with <laughs> yes. everyone eight second segments on TikTok sort of ruling the marketing world. Well, and, it, and, and I think you're quite right. I think now, now is the time, like you even talked about, like Drew saying, take take two days and listen to this, right? That's the definition of how many times we've said to friends, oh, the record's a grower. You need yeah. a couple of days with it. But now we live in a time where, okay, I've got 80 new singles that have just come out and I'm just going to scroll through the first 20 seconds of each and go, okay, uh, yeah, it's not grabbing me. I'm going to move on, right? It's, I mean, like I, you said, I, difficult time to make music. I, I would hope, you know how like um, for whatever, 80 years, like North America just, was obsessed with fast food mm -hmm. and I, my hope is that, you know how like now there's like slow food movements and people are reeling against fast fashion, like um, H and M, you know, kind of like it's hot today and next month it's out. Um, my hope is that there can be a movement to slow music. And I don't mean slow as in beats per minute. I mean, slow as in like, you need to take some time with this. Um, it's a risk. It's totally a risk. And all of this is a risk. But, you know, I think as Jim Carrey once said something along the lines of like, you know, you can con you can create something with a, a target in mind. Like you can create something that you think other people will like. I could make songs that I think would do well on the radio. I could make songs that I think the population would appreciate en masse. But 
the consequence is if I get it wrong and it doesn't work and it doesn't get on the radio and it doesn't get popular, I've failed everyone and me. You know what I mean? Like I failed myself and I failed them because you can get it wrong doing it the quote unquote safe way. Um, and the, the, the risky way is that like, you know, maybe not as many people will hear this because it's, it doesn't pop in the same way that some other things are right now or whatever. However, I think it's less of a risk because at the end of it, I, I feel like I'll be able to listen to this record in 20 years and be like, yep, friggin' did it. There it is. That record's awesome. Maybe five people will hear it, but I will know that I did, that this record was everything that I could have made it. There's and, a, uh, yeah, there's a long line of bands that just said, screw it. Sorry. This is, this is the album we're giving you. Yeah. And these albums are some of the most classic albums we're listening to still. I mean, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot gave career the or gave Wilco the career that they have today. But I will say also that in their benefit, they had a perfect storm. You know, it was like it just popped. And it's like, but the but uh, there's a rule in like music industry speak and like when you're talking to managers and and labels and stuff that like nobody can mention the first Bonnie Vare record. You're like, yeah, it's kind of like that first Bonnie Vare record because it's just like that was a perfect storm. The zeitgeist was just like ready to eat that record up. And it was this massive success. And he, you know, Justin Vernon went from playing to zero people to playing to like eight, 10,000 people in some cities, you know. And it was like this con rocket ship of excitement. And he was getting booked on the biggest shows and getting write ups in the New York Times and stuff. And it was just like, no one could predict that. It was a folk record, you know? Um, it was like a psyche folk record that he made in the woods in a cabin. And then all of a sudden, every band wanted to go make a record in a cabin. Um, but you, And it's the same thing with like Feist blowing up or, you know, there's like success stories like Billie Eilish or something. But it's like all of these perfect storm success stories, you can't bank on that. Like you can't. So for every what Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, that blows up and is a huge success and makes Wilco good money and they have this big career. There's like a hundred or hundred thousand other bands who make a record as daring who are in obscurity forever. Yep. Um, and so, you know, I, I know that I would rather be excited about my work and less popular than I would be if I was extremely popular and not excited about my work. Um, you know, if you could put, if I, you could put me in front of 10,000 people a night, if I thought my, the music I was playing was boring, I wouldn't be happy. And, uh, you know, maybe that's to the detriment of my, maybe that's why my label was like, it's, oh, a, it's a fine line though. Like if you just came out and, and made a, another album that sounded like, Oh, fortune, mm -hmm. you, you could be, there'd be people like, Oh wow. Yeah. He's gone back to that classic Dan Mangan sound. And then there's other people like, this sounds like, Oh, fortune. Like what the hell? <laughs> well, you can never please everyone. Yeah. I mean, you can you can barely please anyone. Um, so you may as well please yourself in the process. And that's the other thing, right? Is that like, you know, even my my like nice, nice, very nice, which is my most folky singer songwriter record, and it, you know, was the, the record that gets requested a lot, um, and it gave me a career. It was the one that kind of put me on the spotlight in Canada. Um, 
but it wasn't when I made that record, that type of music was not popular. Like I made that record before Mumford and Sons, before the Lumineers, before of Monsters and Men, before all of the sort of like folk revivalists, pop anthemic folk bands came to being. And um, when I was making that record, it was not like the, the, the music that that record is was not popular. Like it was it was something else. And yet I had a feeling that there was a place for this music in the world. And the same thing happened with O Fortune. Like that record, you know, there's about probably a lot of people who are hoping I was just going to make another folk record and O Fortune was expansive orchestral sort of opus. And uh, a lot of people were like, oh, geez, I, w you know, I wish you just did another folk record. But now 10 years later from O Fortune, people would be like, oh yeah, that's that classic Dan Mangazan. And so there's, there is this like revolving thing of like it's kind of the artist's job not to predict what will be but to like to like into it um what is exciting to them six to 12 months before the public hears it and often you know the things that become so exciting are things that were made in a vacuum without without the tendrils of of like trying to you know uh, fit into the mold of what is already popular while it's being made. Yeah, and it's such, it's such a thin line too between that moment where you're making something because of your own internalized passion for, hey, this is the sound I want to make on this record versus, um, you know, six months later when someone's coming along and going, ah, that's oversaturated the market now. Now everyone's doing that, right? And it could be, yeah. you know, I remember <clears throat> when the, you know, that, that Fleet Fox's big sound of folk suddenly was everywhere and it was just like you know a couple of months where it went from nothing yeah. to everyone was doing it right do you remember uh on the arcade fire second record neon bible i think it's the song no cars go mm -hmm. and so there's a couple times in that song it goes like -na 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 and they'll go hey yeah and um that was fresh like yeah Everyone just singing, hey, cool. You know, fast forward a couple of years, <laughs> you get, um, you know, Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zero. Hey, you get uh, Lumineers going, ho, yeah. hey. <laughs> um, you get Of Monsters and Men. Da, 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 da. Hey, like, it, it, it's like, you know, and no disparaging comments. I like, I, uh they were they those bands were tapping into the zeitgeist they were in you know i don't think that they were like planning on copying anyone or whatever it was just so like they all it, it was the same thing um i remember back in like the early aughts and every band name had to have an animal in it it was like <laughs> modest mouse fleet foxes um you know uh wolf then there was Braid, lots of wolves yeah there was wolf lots eyes, of wolves <laughs> frog eyes you know a, a wooden bird it was like every band had to have like a, a an animal in it and the thing is is that like they sort of they all got the idea like five years earlier when they were in college and then finally the, all of those bands came to fruition <laughs> at the same time i remember when we were naming our first kid and uh we, we we wanted to name him jude and we looked on the like bc registry of how many judes there were born in that year it was like six Judes and all of BC were like, Oh good. That's not a very popular name. That's great. You, you know, he's not gonna, he's not gonna be in, in class with like five Judes kind of thing. 
And that was 2012. He was born in 2013. We checked back on the registry. In 2013, there was like 60 Jews in BC. So there was like a 10x growth in Jews. So the second you think that you are like on the crest of the wave that, you know, that you've got this idea that no one else has, there's all these other people, like whatever, I don't know how, I don't know where it came from, but somewhere in the zeitgeist, the name Jude got implanted in both my wife and my brain at the same time as a bunch of other parents to be. And it could have been five years before, it could have been 10 years before. I do remember that in the, in the movie, um, all across the universe, that Beatles movie, the lead character was Jude. And I'm like, Oh, maybe that's part of it. You know, I don't know. You know, it's like a, a character name in a movie or a TV show. Give it five, six years, a bunch of babies with that name. And so, it's all in this exercise of like, you know, where do are you reacting? To some extent, none of us can really help it. We are all reacting all the time. We nobody's like a completely independent soul, you know. But um, I don't know. I feel like, for me personally, I'm always the most excited about something when it feels like a happy accident, and when it feels like I thought of something. And then I did it and I planned it out and I executed it and I got it there and I demoed that song to death. And I thought about every little counter melody and we got it in the studio and then we did everything just like the demo, but a little bit nicer. And then we get to the end and I go, yeah, that sounds good. Okay, great. Whereas we got another song where it's like an inspiration of an idea and I'm not quite finished the song. We bring it into the studio anyways. And then, Oh my God, the drummer just, does some cool thing and okay that's what the song is now and then it spirals into this like orgy of excitement and and creativity and then at the end of it you're like holy crap look what we made we made this thing it's the best you know and so to me that's always where i want to be is in the pocket of that feeling is in that sort of like don't have an idea like don't have too specific an idea of what it's supposed to be and let it find its way on its own. I feel like you mentioned Radiohead earlier. Like I've watched, I've seen them over the years a few times. And the last time I saw them a few years ago, I was just staring at them. I'm like, these guys are on another level. Like they're, oh, yeah. what what they're doing, no one can even come <clears throat> close to it. And it, it, just picking up on what you were saying there, I don't even think they think about it. I think every song no. is just this happy accident. And they're like, yeah, that's that's awesome. They're, it's like they're playing a different sport altogether. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, like if you were to say to me, like, Dan, name your name the five best like current bands that are like making music, and I would go, okay, well, obviously Radiohead, number one, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and then I'd go, um, hmm, I can't really put anyone in the same five as Radiohead. No. It's like the it's like the top five are all Radiohead, and then there's a big bucket, and you can put, you know, whatever Beck and Big Thief and, uh, you know, a bunch of great, awesome, interesting, cool bands in there. But Beck and Big Thief are not doing what Radiohead's doing, and they never have, and they never will. Like they can't. Like it's just to me. I know how biased I am, but nobody can even. Like to me, nobody like Radiohead is not even a band. They're just like this thing that exists. Yeah. And then there's a bunch of people trying to be in bands, you know? Right. <laughs> I'd say like Radiohead is that sing like they all are parts of a whole. Whereas Yankee Ho- Hotel Foxtrot was was more it's all Jeff Tweedy, right? Like it's his vision, but he brought these players in. 
Yeah, I would say he was like the um, master of ceremonies. Yeah. You know, like there's incredible performances by a slew of musicians. Yes. And he, I think that, I, I don't know this about Jeff Tweedy, but I, I would almost wager to guess that he would agree with me on this and and feel the same way i have had i've made a wonderful career of being the worst musician on stage you know like <laughs> that is like my goal like i want to be surrounded with people who are such amazing musicians that all of my inadequacies don't even show you know like i can just get into the song and sing the song and play along to what they're doing and um I don't take solos. I'm not a shredder. I'm not a, I'm not like a, I'm not a great musician with my hands. Um, but the thing that I'm good at is, is connecting with a large group of people and feeling like we're all together and I'm good at writing songs. I'm good at not reciting those songs, but like living them, like getting inside those songs every time and trying to make them fresh and real each time and trying to sing every lyric. Like I just thought of it. Um, and so that's what I'm good at. And what I need around me are people who are really good at playing drums and bass and keys and doing backup vocals, all that stuff that requires a lot, you know, a lot more um, practice, you know, like being really studied. Um, but I, uh, I feel like that's something that I've, I've become good at is sort of like trusting my gut and not being the person who's giving necessarily the great take but the person who's encouraging the person giving the great take to give their best take and um, to sort of like make decisions and, and trust my, my own gut. I've learned to do that. Um, and honestly, like I, when I was 20, when I was 19 years old, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot came out and that record was so informative to me, you know, in terms of like, Oh, I thought folk music was one thing, but it's another, it's like um, uh, in the airplane over the sea, that neutral milk hotel record, right? Like, I thought folk music was this one thing, and then it turns out it was this other thing entirely. Um, and without Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, and without uh, the airplane over the sea, there would have been no Lumineers, Mumford and Sons. You know, Mumford and Sons is like they took this thing that Wilco was, and they made it pop anthems, right? And it's 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 wrapped in the folkiness of acoustic guitars, but they they're writing massive anthemic pop songs and um and executing them flawlessly um and so yankee hotel foxtrot i think is sort of like this this moment where all of these different pieces coalesced into this beautiful thing that then went in and inspired countless 16 year olds to start bands you know myself included um and then they all go and they take on other influences and stuff like that. But it's, it's like, um, we're all just trying to be a part of music because music is exciting. And even people who are successful in it, that's all they want to, you know, like they're, they're all like, you ask Paul McCartney, like, Hey, what are you most excited about in your work, Paul? Like, is it yesterday? He's going to be like, no, it's the song I wrote five seconds ago. That's the one I'm most excited about. Like it doesn't get old. Like everybody just wants to keep drawing from the well. You brought and... up. Oh, sorry. No, 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 please. You brought up uh, two points there uh, that uh, I, th I think are interesting. Uh, one of them was that idea that um, the uh, 
surrounding yourself with with amazing musicians i mean uh, and amazing people and, and sort of being the least talented i mean i would argue his new band has has the greatest guitar player in the world uh in nels klein and you and you're like what is nels klein doing with this very kind of atypical southern rock style style mm -hmm. band right but it, it works perfectly uh yeah but on this um as well i mean they're coming together they've got this great and i know it's a word he brings up when he talks about this record is that collaboration aspect but this is supposed to be their self-produced album but even to the production element when they go and bring in jim o'rourke to do that final who who according to jeff kind of brings that whole album together mm -hmm. to make it sound so connected i mean you talked there about the impact that glenn has had on on this record with you um is that oh sorry drew my, my apologies has had on you where is uh, can you explain explain to me a little bit that for for you and i'm assuming also for yankee hotel foster with the work that role of the producer to kind of mm -hmm. hold you in as a as the writer <clears throat> totally well i mean i think that jim o'rourke took like a billion hours of recording tape and turned it into something cohesive that the world could enjoy and uh, I think that that was a monumental task and he was just the right person for the job. Drew is ruthless um, in the most beautiful way. Like I would send him 25 ideas for a song. Like I'd send him like synth layers and piano lines and background vocals and me humming various things. And then me like pitching my vocal in a weird way and delaying it. And like, I would send him all of this stuff, percussion ideas. And then he would uh, um, take those ideas and maybe add two of them for like 10 seconds, <laughs> you know, because he's protecting it. Like he's always looking for space in the song. And I think that one thing you'll notice in this, on these recordings is that even when it feels big and more saturated, there's always space, like there's room to move around in. It's not, it, it always feels like um, there's like uh, holes that you can reach through and there's room to wiggle around in. It's not like a, it never feels like just a bunch of butter, you know, on a pan. It's like, um, and so in a way, like Drew's really good at drawing things out of me because he's got amazing taste and when I give him something that he doesn't think is good or interesting or cool, he'll just benevolently tell me to do it a different way. <laughs> and uh, so I would, you know, I really listened to him. I kind of handed him the keys on this project and let him run the show, which is really scary because these songs were really precious to me. I was came into them feeling like these are the best batch of songs I've ever written. And, you know, what's going to happen to them? And... Uh, he pulled it in a direction that nobody really anticipated, but that I, in the end, after taking those 48 hours to listen to it 25 times, <laughs> came to the conclusion that it's the best thing I've ever touched. And there's, it's, you know, there's, no, there's no other producer that could have created this record the way it is. Um, so, you know, and I, I also don't, like, I don't know if that's the way every record should be made. You know, I think that having made a record over two and a half years, completely long distance in isolated ways, pretty sure my next record's going to be made in two weeks in a cabin in the woods. You know, it's going to, I'm going to 
ache for that opposite thing. Everything's going to be live off the floor. So, uh, The second thing you, is you talked about the influence of this album, uh, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. Um, and, and yeah, I've always put it and Mermaid Avenue as probably from 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 my take and and what I've seen happen in music in the last 10 15 years um probably the two most influential albums I've seen I mean you guys talked about Radiohead earlier like you said I, I think people can try to emulate Radiohead but it's so I think when people try and do it people go wait a second let's it sounds like you're obviously doing Radiohead mm -hmm. whereas I think with Wilco you had them do Mer you like I remember every house party you went to uh when Mermaids Avenue came out is you heard it. Like every place I was in was playing Mermaid Avenue. And then like six months later I was at houses and it was like Yankee Hotel Foxtrot everywhere. Like those two albums and rooms with like tons of musicians in them. So I mean that idea of, of just an album influencing like almost like a generation mm -hmm. of music fans is is inspiring and uh yeah, I think that was a really good point you made that this the influence of this album is just massive. Totally. Totally massive. And again, like they got shat on by the record label because what they delivered was too unique. And then what did we end up celebrating? How unique it was, mm -hmm. you know? And um I just I love those stories. I love you know, like, um, I mean, I don't love this story because it's depressing, but like, you know, when Nick Drake killed himself, he'd sold like 5,000 records. Mm -hmm. He died thinking he was like a failed failure, you know? And, um, and of course, fast forward 20 years and his music gets placed on a Volkswagen ad and he's a folk icon, you know? Pink Moon is as beautiful and perfect a record as you can make. And it wasn't for the time. Like at the time that he made that record, now it seems classic. Now it seems old, but at the time it was probably weird, probably just didn't cut through the fabric. It wasn't what people were looking for. And I, to be honest, I have felt the zeitgeist in my favor enough to also recognize when it's not in my favor. And so 2009, nice, nice, very nice, you know, not really internationally necessarily, but in Canada, like kind of blew up a little bit. We went from playing to like a hundred people to like a thousand people in the span of like nine months. And that felt, it felt like everywhere we went, everybody was giving me the benefit of the doubt. It was like, well, who are we going to put on the cover of, the Calgary Arts Mag. Well, let's put Dan Mangan on the cover. Okay. Yeah, he seems like he's got a bunch of momentum. That's exciting. And everywhere I went, I was just getting the benefit of the doubt. Everywhere I went, it was just sort of like I was I was uh, an exciting person to, you know, bet on. And I guarantee you in that moment back then that there was, you know, thousands of artists who were not me who are probably going, well, why is he getting all this attention? My music is so much better than his and my music is more interesting my, or whatever. And they're all right and they're all wrong. And they're all, you know what I mean? Like, like it's, it's just the way that this industry works is that there's this confluence of incredible hard work and grit and just flat luck. And also stuff like you just can't 
time like it's perfect storm stuff it's like um you can't plan it all you can do is do your best and so i felt that early on and then mumford and sons happened and lumineers happened and all these big bands got massive and the lumineers by the way i have to give that band a lot of credit because they came out of the gate with this big chart topping song that was really catchy and they've made a long career out of writing consistently just like great songs and putting on a show and they you know to this day they played it they sold like thirty-five thousand tickets in their hometown or something like that ridiculous um but you know all of those bands, all the, the of Monsters and Men and Mumford and Sons, they all, they saturated the world with like indie folk to the point where the world was like, enough, okay, let's get some people on stage who aren't white guys. Like, let's get some people on stage who don't have guitars for a while. And then we had like synth pop and Lord came along and that was exciting. And, you know, it's it's like, I, I feel in my 39th year here with an acoustic guitar, I'm, I am, I'm a white dad of two kids. You know, I am not what is exciting to the zeitgeist. Maybe, <laughs> maybe rightly so. Like, you know, white dudes with guitars had the benefit of the doubt for a long time. It's okay to, you know, move us, move aside and let some other people have the stage. But it is something that like, I'm realizing, you know, as I get pitched for support slots or I get pitched for NPR stuff or whatever, that like, I'm just the least excited. Like, like somebody, uh, somebody in the office has to love my music for it to get the feature. Whereas maybe there was a moment before where it was like, they all thought it was pretty good. And I, I was the obvious choice. And so kind of recognizing that that you fall you fall in and out of the zeitgeist and it just it is what it is and all you can really do is focus on making the music that is interesting to you that is insightful that is hopefully unlocking hidden truths of exi about existence um and if it's not timed with the, the zeitgeist well who knows maybe in 20 years that song of mine that i thought was incredible that other people didn't like gets it in a Volkswagen ad and you know it <laughs> finally finds that audience that well, it was it does meant for. a lot of uh it, it depends on the fans too like it, it, fans that are now in positions of power and I'm pretty sure it has to be where the Nick Drake came from right someone mm -hmm. was a fan who worked yeah. for the marketing company that Volkswagen hired and they said I got the perfect song yeah it's from this guy and then it gets out there it, you know, it's a, a lot of that's happening now. I'm seeing that a lot. And it's just the fans are willing your music into being. Yeah. <laughs> right. I, I see it all the time, like comments on YouTube videos or comments on social posts or something like, like somebody will post on a music video of mine. Like, why doesn't this have a hundred million views? Like, you know, and I'm always like, thanks. Thanks for that. Yeah. Appreciate that. You know, I would love a hundred million views. Yeah. And there's, there's almost like, I think when I was younger, um, I was really concerned about looking cool and being cool. And um, I was worried about like selling out and like trying too hard to market something or to get it out there to spread the word. And I, I thought about that too much. Um, and I think that because I was like 
insecure or defensive about the music and unsure of it in a way I was even more uh, worried about it coming, me coming across the wrong way or me coming across uncool or something like that. Cause I felt like me being sort of cool was required for the music to work. And um, as I've gotten older, I have come to a place where I actually, I want nothing to do with cool. Like I, to me, cool is this like phantom of like uh, relativity. What's cool to you is lame to someone else. And so if you're aiming for that, you're doomed because even if you achieve it, you're not going to believe it because you're going to think that you fooled everyone. And uh, whereas aiming for something that feels true, that feels nuanced, uh, exciting, truthful, um, earnest even, um, you know if you're hitting it or you're not. You know if it's working or not internally. It's like when you're at a party and you're kind of acting like a big goofball or something because you're in party mode and then you're like, I'm being an idiot. This is not who I am or whatever. You know, like you kind of feel like you're faking it or, or acting. And um, I know when I'm acting, I know when I'm faking it. And I don't like that feeling. So I just want to not fake it as much as possible. And um, when it comes to the music, I I feel maybe I'm out to lunch, but I just feel like. I've never had a clearer sense of what I think is good in my music and being proud of it. And also I've never been more willing to flog it. Like I, you know, like put it in an ad. I don't care. I want <laughs> millions of people to hear this music. I will like put it on dancing with the stars, like put it on anything except for maybe like a Republican ad or something like that. <laughs> but like, you know, like get it out there. Like I, I will text anyone who i have their number and send them this my songs like i will email it to anyone i can because if i don't nothing will happen and i think it's good and i believe in it and if i didn't believe in it i'd probably be more sheepish about from promoting it you see you were saying you're saying you're not cool that's one of the coolest things i've ever heard anyone say by the way <laughs> From National Treasure, Dan Mangan, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I, I always love the, uh, there's a part in Kim Gordon's book where she talks about, you know, her and Thurston Moore going to see their daughter's band play at this, like, club. And, you know, it's Thurston Moore, it's Kim Gordon, celebrity, like, maybe arguably two of the coolest people in music history at the time. Definitely. And how the daughter is, like... Embarrassed. Absolutely embarrassed <laughs> that their parents are there because, and they're playing punk rock. So like they, they are legends and she like comes over and says, you need to leave. Like you yeah, are the I most am. uncool. You're just my parents. You know, and it's just that idea that you're going, good we, work, sweetie. <laughs> <laughs> how we see cool and how, no, it's just not cool at all. Right. And, um, it's so relative. Like it, honestly, yeah. like if you, like you, do you remember there was a moment where like every article was like Grimes is the coolest person on the planet. <laughs> and it was like, even more than her music, like that was the story was here's someone who's cooler than you. Yeah. And like, like I was, I was picturing being Grimes at the time going like, this sucks. Like, <laughs> like, it's like everywhere you go, people are like, Oh wait, she's going to do something cool. You know, like, <laughs> like, I, I don't know. I just, it sounds awful. And like, it's how you end up selling out, you know, Madison Square Gardens and then like doing heroin in the janitor's closet or something. It's like you, all of these things that you think you want come true. 
but because you feel like you fooled the world into believing it, you don't believe it. And then this cognitive dissonance, like the worst thing in the world is looking out over an audience who are frothing at the mouth for you and thinking you're a bunch of idiots. You like me? Like, you know, like that would, that's like the worst. Nobody wants that. Um, and so I like focusing on something that elicits like an actual, like existential, existential respite. Like I want people to leave my shows and go like, man, like I want to like build a car from scratch and climb a mountain and bake a cake and row a boat across the Atlantic and make out with someone. And like, like, you know, all like you just want to feel when you leave a great show or when you hear a great record that like you, you see yourself reflected in others. You feel not alone. You feel connected to something greater than you. It's like, I mean, it's what I imagine other people perceive church to be for them. Like I want people to leave fulfilled and like filled up with this sort of like soul fuel. And um, the only way that I know how to do that is to send up my smoke signal and say, this is how I feel and articulate it in a way that hopefully is interesting. And then they, in, they take that smoke signal, they interpret it, they feel it themselves and they go, yes, that's how I feel too. I would have never articulated it just as so, but I feel the same as you. Therefore, for having partaken in this cosmic connection between these people, um, we are all less existentially alone. And like, to me, that's fucking cool. <laughs> you know, like I don't thrive behind the veil. I don't, I don't, I, I'm not a mysterious dude. I'm not going to go out and sort of be in like lurking in the shadows and like say something cool. I'm going to be a dorky dude who is going to just, I like, I'm the, I like, I, I pride myself on being the same person on stage as I am off stage. And it is, I'm not like a, someone who walks around being cool. And so when something happens that is like undeniably real and visceral and like moving emotionally to me, it's the coolest thing. And so, I mean, I guess cool being relative, you know, but like, that's what I want. I just, I just want that feeling all the time. I want goosebumps as many times as possible and then die, you know? So you're not going to be unbuttoning your shirt, Allah. Oh, does it? I, I will. If, it, if, if, <laughs> if it'll help sell some records, yeah. um, I will do anything. I'll do anything to get these songs heard. Like, you know, uh, I, I believe in them and I want people to hear them. Apparently you're on our podcast. So. Yes. Uh, what you talked about putting out smoke signals. That's like the, the bet. That's Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. Right. That, that's that's it. That's that's Wilco putting that up like, look, this is where we're at right now. And it got willed into being. Yeah. And yeah, some of and Scott is like thinking that's that record is some of the best lines. That's the opening of um, reservations. How can I convince you? It's me. I don't like like that line. I remember the first time hearing that line and being like, oh, God, like I need to sit with that for a moment. Like. How can I convince you it's me I don't like? Like you can unpack that and unpack oh, that. Yeah. There's so much there. Um, I've got reservations about so many things, but not about you. It's like, I don't know. Like, they, yeah, they put it out there. And the interesting thing with that record too is it's not like an overly, like Jeff Tweedy has a way of simultaneously being very emotional and obscure at the same time. 
you know um he can like you know talking about assassinating down the avenue or whatever like he can be he can be obscure and you still feel it i think that's the interesting thing is that like his lyrics are not necessarily always tender hearted and yet you feel them tenderly partly through how he sings them or the treatment that they've given i felt something when i heard that record i remember being on a ferry you know heading over to salt spring island or something and just listening to jesus etc like five times in a row and being like god like what just the coolest song and it just feel it just made me feel something you know is that your favorite song on the record is that my favorite song on the record um or what is your favorite? i mean if not what is it's it's always the hardest question we know but yeah i would say probably either jesus etc or reservations yeah Great and to me, reservations is a really inter- we just talked to as Tom was saying earlier, uh, Dave from the Golden Dogs, and we talked. I brought up uh, our, the album we were talking about was the White Album, and I brought up he he said at the start he would stand by every song on that album, and I brought up so what are your thoughts on Revolution Number Nine? Oh yeah, and he made a great point about they were at this point like uh, Lennon. And Yoko were at this, they, they bonded over the destruction of art. And when I was listening to this one in the last couple of days since then, I'm just like, yeah, that's almost what they do with uh, Poor Places and Reservations too. Mm-hmm. It's like yeah. they've got this beautiful album all the way. And then these last two songs, there's just noise and chaos. and But there's beauty there too. And pacing. It's And it's, it's also such a patient record. Like, you uh you really have to like you earn the climaxes because there's like these long drawn and it's weird because when you've heard a record enough times even the weird random noises you you're you're expecting them like you like you memorize the placement of the weird random noises um which is hilarious in its own way (laughs) um and it's so special like it it feels it's it I, i think with any kind of art like you're trying to harness like the magic of a performance that is that weird X factor, that je ne sais quoi that just makes it so special. And yet at the same time, you're trying to craft meticulously this perfect thing out of other things. And it takes time and care and diligence. And the meeting of those two worlds, spontaneity and magic, and also care, editing, form, uh, muscle memory, uh, work ethic, like all of these things have to kind of meet. And if you're lucky, you get this incredible piece of work. And then probably no one will hear it. And then you have to like, it's it's like then the, the a whole new challenge starts. And I spent two and a half making being somewhere. And I'm like right now in the throngs of figuring out how to get anyone to hear it. And um, I you know, as six records deep, I am as clueless now as I was with the first one. Well, we will scream it to the top of our lungs <laughs> that's right, to that's listen right. to this album, everyone. <laughs> Thank so you. there's two. Yeah, there you <laughs> go. That there we go. So we so, want to be cognizant of your time, man. We are so appreciative yes. of you taking taking the time to talk to us today. Super excited about the record, and like Dave said, we will push it from the mountain 
tops for everyone to hear. Uh, you guys are sweethearts. Well, thank you for having me on the show. Thank you. Hey, very thank much you, for Dan. Your time. Have a nice night. Nice meeting Take you. Care. Cheers. Good luck with the European tour, by the way. Oh, thank you. Yeah, looking forward to it. Oh, I awesome. bet. I bet. Thanks, guys. Don't cry You can rely on me, honey You can combine anything you want I'll be around You write about the stars Each one is a setting sun Singing sad, sad songs Tuned to chords Strung down your cheeks Bitter melodies Turning your orbit around Don't cry You can rely on me, honey You can come by Anytime you want I'll be around You write about the stars Each one is a setting sun Tall buildings shake Voices escape Singing sad, sad songs Tuned to chords Strung down your cheeks Bitter melodies Turning your orbit around Voices whine Skyscrapers are scraping together Your voice is smoking And last cigarettes are all you can get Turning your orbit around
All right, Dave. So you know how I feel about this record. I've made no qualms about that in my ears. It says in my notes here, Tom, one of the greatest albums ever. Not a bad tune, a masterpiece. Huh. There you go. There's my. There it is. That's it. That's it. And it really is. There's not a bad tune on this record. This is a, this is an absolute masterpiece from start to end. Um, I'm gonna, I, I love I love this record. Great, great. I, to me, uh, I just love because it is such a layered album, and you can hear, <clears throat> excuse me, the the time they took to put it together. Jeff Tweedy was letting, just letting his skill as an artist come out in this, and he's really trying to pull out what he's hearing in his head this time. Mm -hmm. And it, it, yeah, it's getting away from that rock. It's getting away from the, some of those country vibes. Um, I mean, you could also call this like, if they were from Southern California, this would be a SoCal song, uh, album, you know, a la the Eagles, Fleetwood Mac, Ronston. Mm -hmm. This was the seventies, right? Like they, but yeah. you could just tell that he was getting away from that and evolving kind of like i said at the start like i don't know what the labels were listening to the first three albums but like they had to realize something was coming and it may not have been what they wanted and yeah he was just letting it go he was hearing these sounds in his head and you're hearing that like with the just kind of the noise in the background sometimes and just the different instruments they pulled in and the the different band members being asked to do different things and that's just to me is an exciting album, you know. Oh, 100%. That, that, that is just that's just creativity at its best. And so I'm not going to say this is an album I pull out a lot and I know these songs off by heart. It's just an album that like I look at and I go, yeah, that is that is art, high art, especially something you don't hear a lot of, uh, especially in the last 20 years, right? Especially in the yeah. early 2000s yeah. where the music business was just in disarray. And I, I feel like maybe the label thought, Wilco, are going to save us, save us all. And then they show up with this. <laughs> so, yeah, um, it's I, I like it. I, I can listen to it. And it's funny, though. I want to call you out for saying not a bad, not a bad song on this album. Those last two songs, I'm going to go back and to our previous uh, chat with Dave from the Golden Dogs. Where we were talking about Revolution Number Nine, right? And how that and like you're like, he said I can stand by every one of these songs, and you're like, really? What about Revolution Number Nine? And he made the most beautiful treaty about like how that was like this album of art, and how this song just tore it all down, like destroyed art. I'm gonna say right. the last two songs on Yankee Hotel Foxtrot um, did the same thing. Oh come no. Listen, like, listen to Yankee, the lyrics of hotel, Reservation. Foxtrot, oh. Yankee, So they put that hotel, in at the end. Foxtrot, they put a radio thing Yankee, in at the end hotel, as an edit. Foxtrot, come on. Right. A CB thing. I loved it. it. I loved it, but like, I, immedi I immediately. No, but wait, 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 wait. That's not the whole song, though. No, the it's not. The song is structured, no, and then that just comes in at the end, right? Yes. And then Reservations is... I think maybe one of the most beautiful songs on the record. But I mean, there's still some chaos in that song. Oh, hundred percent. And but they embrace that, and that's what I love about this. Like in the record, I'm I'm always reminded of a line that Brent Smith, uh, for for those of you in Ottawa from the band Tin Constellations, um, check them out. He always had this great comment where he he would talk about he was a huge Flaming Lips fan, and he was always talking about how you can take any Flaming Lips song 
and just pull it all back and you can play it on an acoustic guitar. And there's a part in the documentary where Jay, I'm pretty sure it's Jay Bennett and Jeff Tweedy are talking and he says, we just can do, we just start with that guitar. And then we just keep layering and putting things on and just do just just pushing it, pushing it and pushing it until we kind of can't recognize it anymore. And I'm just like, yes. And that's the thing. Like when I compare this to a revolution number nine, which is all over the place, when like I could pick up an acoustic <clears throat> guitar if I could play more than five notes on the guitar uh, and I could I could play reservations. It's not like it's a beautiful song. Right. How can I convince you that it's me? I don't like when I've always been distant and I've always told lies for love. Oh man, it's, <laughs> oh, I've got I've got reservations about many things, but not about you. Oh man, that's a heartbreaking song. Like, and it's just it's just beautiful. And then you and I just but the think, chaos. It's the chaos I love. Oh, hundred percent the chaos. I'm just is great I'm just too. pointing yeah. out like uh, how how I was like oh how does Tom get over that chaos and that tearing down of everything that came before it. You know what I mean? And that's where I think, yeah, no, and I think that's where um, I love chaos. I love chaos when it's connected to the piece. Like, so mm. when I'm listening to, I don't know, the end of Drown by the Smashing Pumpkins, or I'm listening to this whole album, or I'm listening to, oh gosh, Spiders on the next Wilco album. Um, I like that chaos. I like, I love that chaos. I love when, um, you know, My Bloody Valentine leave a show and there's 20 minutes of feedback and guitar at the end. I, I just, I love that. But when it's just, this is just what we're going to do and nothing else. Then I'm like, yeah, okay. You've kind of lost me then. Like I, I kind of want to have still that song at, at the base of it. And that's what I think Wilco do really well is we've still got the song and then we'll put these layers and layers and layers on top of it. Uh, and put the chaos and put everything else on top. And I think that's that's what makes it such an amazing record. It's my father's voice drilling off, sailors sailing off in the morning. For the air conditioned rooms at the top of the stairs. He's just been broken, his bandages wrapped too tight. His fangs have been pulled, and I really want to see you tonight. Climbing walls, 
interesting things i mentioned at the start the connections to to 9-11 uh the release date the towers on the front uh the lyrics like ashes of the american flag oh that's uh, actually and, that that is one that sticks with me every time oh yeah that image because like right? that was the image that we kept seeing in 9-11 right? right and i love the uh i love that ashes of the american flag uh when we have the i'm just gonna bring up there so i don't want I love the line with Ashes of American Flag where he says, um, 
worship the uh, what is it? I'd like to salute the ashes of the American flag and the fallen leaves filling up shopping bags. Like that coordinate that that combination that the flag is is leaves. Like they're just there's no. Like it's it's such an unpatriotic song. Yeah. It's like the I get an the image. polar opposites well, of uh, Born in the USA. I I get an image of con- like consumerism there too, right? Yeah, hundred percent. Coca Cola. So, yeah, totally. Yeah, no. And, great line. and then you get to G- yeah, and then you get to Jesus, etc. And I think there's some references there that can't. It, they just harken back to that. It seems like such a weirdly timed record to be released at that at that <laughs> era. Strangely, yeah. Like um, all of a sudden, everybody is thinking going through the same emotions and thoughts that Jeff was thinking like six to eight months before that. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So weird. Yeah. It was really strange. Um, and we, we talk about like, we always have to remember too, that when they put this on WilcoWorld.net, their website for free, mm-hmm. um, it was hitting 50,000 hits a day, which was eight times as much as the typical daily traffic. So, the traffic on the website quadrupled normal traffic over the next few months. Like this wasn't something that lasted for a couple of days. Right. This kept going for months, which just shows you just what a massive thing this was. And like, I'm sure the record company, like I'm sure when all these other record companies were vying to get them, they were probably saying, yeah, can you take it offline yeah. though? Because you're giving it away. Uh, so I don't think they expected it to to sell as well as it did, which was just kind of staggering as well, right? Well, now everybody everybody got a taste online, right? Now they want it. Yeah. Now you you had your diehards, and your diehards support the artists. They go out and buy the CDs. They go buy the you know the vinyl. Uh, was iTunes around and then around that time? I think it was. Might have been. Yeah, I think it was. Can't yeah. remember. Yeah, uh, but. Yeah, so uh, it did well, and that's a testament to just stick to it, and s- great art just finds a way to get out there eventually, right? Yeah, it does. It does. Yeah. Uh, what's your favorite song on the record? Uh, it's funny. Um, I'm Trying to Break Your Heart is a great, like that must have song. been, I'm going to, uh, you know, as much as we lambaste the, the labels for like, uh, passing on this and and whatever i'm sure every wilco fan at the start of i'm trying trying to break your heart is going huh okay and <laughs> but they get back into it i'm gonna say oh, war on God, war war so on good. war is a great is a great by the album. way speaking of i'm trying to break your heart have you heard the live version no I from not. uh from their live record that came a couple years later it, it's phenomenal yeah it's a great great version of that yeah check it out sorry though. to cut you off i apologize oh that's okay and but yeah so great First song, I think, on, and that should let you know, like, okay, you're not getting out of sight, right? It's yeah. So, so uh, heavy metal drummers, like, it's just, yeah, there's a, these are all great songs. I'm going to say there's a little one-two punch, though. Pot Kettle Black, and then mm-hmm. what I referenced earlier, Poor Places, just because of that chaos at the end. So pot kettle black i'm i'm, I'm gonna say there's your toe tapper that was like you know what yeah again what were the labels not listening to well clearly they didn't go deep into the album because this is a, well, i think that war on war, heavy war, on metal war. Drummer, i think oh, they yeah. were all pretty yeah pretty so you know yeah nothing that was really throw me off yeah for me it's a toss-up between pot kettle black and poor places I'll, I'll, just to be weird i'll go poor places though uh just that chaos yeah. at the end and uh yeah, it's uh, 
yeah, just a really cool. And then comes in with that beautiful reservations, which is a a weird ending too. Just a little more mm-hmm. quiet and reflective, right? Running time on that last track is just you know just under seven and a half minutes. So yeah, um, but yeah, no, the, the great great start, great ending. Yeah, I uh, I'm gonna f- uh, I have such a problem with this album for picking a favorite. I also have a problem picking a favorite Wilco album. I, I honestly I go from this album uh, to to the follow up to this, mm. and, and I and I kind of flip back and forth between which one I prefer more. Uh, and usually I'll go six months loving one, and then I'll switch back to the other. But um, and I'm the same with songs on this. Uh, for the longest time when I first got it, Pot Kettle Black was my was my favorite. Um, but I think as I've went on over the years, like, yeah, I'm trying to break your heart is, is just awesome. This time through, I really just, yeah, Ashes of the American Flag, I just kept coming back to it and just thought it was just, it was just wonderful. Yeah, there's, um, that there's just, and, and, you know, I say that, but like, I'm the man who loves you, like, that that horn line that comes out that da 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 and then uh his guitar part uh Jay Bennett's guitar part and that that is just fantastic too uh when he leads into the lead it's yeah it, it's a hard one but if i'm feeling particularly kind of dark and somber mm. maybe ashes of the american flag would be where i am and i also think maybe it's a fitting metaphor for everything that we've seen maybe since this album has come out in america It's blue and green For a hundred and twenties And a small service fee I could spend three dollars And sixty-three cents On Diet Coca-Cola And omelette cigarettes I know I will die if I can come 
Thanks to Waddy for letting us use his song In My Heart as our theme song. Thanks to Dan Mangan, the nicest guy in Canadian music, for joining us this week. And most importantly, thanks to you for listening to The Sound Effect. If you enjoyed today's show, please share it on social media and let us know what you think of the show. And remember, there's always a great record out there just waiting to be discovered. So keep listening.
do. I might have to work. So there's some confusion now with the guy that I gets to cover me. So anyways, he's in Vegas right now and he's been in kind of incommunicado. So he'll, he'll, he'll show up eventually, but yeah, we'll figure it out, but I'll be there. All right. We'll see you. Yep.